It's time for the two witnesses. Hey guys, this is Lee. This is the Honor of Kings podcast, and this is episode three of Zachariah's Eight Visions and the Two Witnesses. Uh, quick recap. Last week, we discussed, we discussed the man with the measuring line, measuring Jerusalem, and we discovered that that was the man Christ Jesus measuring his church and that um, the church has entered into the stage of judgment. Much, much like that era when Noah was preaching repentance for 120 years, building the ark, well, we are there now. And I also pointed out, and I'll just reiterate, the three angels' messages in Revelation 14, 6 through 12, very important. Everybody should be familiar with those and read them over and over if you can. Uh, then we went on to Joshua, the high priest, and we saw how that was a model of Christ with his church defending us against Satan, the accuser, and that Jesus is in the sanctuary in this time of judgment, and he is our, basically our defense attorney. He is covering us. He's protecting us from the, the attacks of the enemy, the accusations of Satan. And then, of course, along the way, where I probably set a whole bunch of hair on fire is when I suggested that Michael the Archangel is actually Jesus. It's not a separate being. It's not a created being. But Michael, it's simply a name thing that in this particular form or this particular condition that Jesus is referred to as Michael. And I know that's really hard for, for people to get into. And um, But what I failed to mention during that episode, I failed to discuss the importance of names. And in the Bible, you will see that names change frequently. And, you know, God assigns new names to people as the circumstances change then so do their names. You can take uh, Jacob. Um, his name was Supplanter. Or um, some people say Deceiver was Jacob Jacob's name. And he did. He supplanted Esau and took the birthright. And he, you know, the, the young, the older would serve the younger. But then he wrestles with God. And it... God renames him Israel, one who prevails with God. So his name changed. With Jesus, you see very much the same thing. You know, he's referred to as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then he will be called Yeshua, Jesus, uh, which is to rescue, to deliver. Um, the Lord saves is uh, one of the translations for it. So when you get to Michael, it means who is like God. And a lot of people take that as a question. As a question where you're standing there, who is like unto God? Nobody can be like unto God, which is true. Nobody can be like unto God except Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I, I contend that that name, who is like God, is not a question but a statement. Michael is he who is like God. So, I don't know, it's just something to think about. I, I understand where people, you've gone your whole life thinking this is an angel, and it's a whole different being outright, and it sounds, for some people this might sound heretical or whatever, 
But again, I gotta. I just have to reinforce the the notion that I am not suggesting that Jesus is being lessened into a created being. I'm only saying this is simply a name thing. It's simply a name thing. And when they're saying that name, Michael, that they're actually referring to Jesus. And we see plenty of times through Scripture where the angel of the Lord, uh, even the one that wrestled with, with Jacob, you know, the angel of the Lord, it's he comes in, in some form of angelic form. When he's not here in his body of Jesus, but he's here doing things. So, I don't know, take it for what it's worth. But I thought that was an interesting thing to bring up, and it's something for you guys to seek out for yourself in Scripture. So today, as I noted earlier, we are going to focus on the fifth vision, and which is the candlesticks and the olive trees, and get to the identity of the two witnesses. This will probably be the only subject we cover in today's episode. Usually I've been doing two, two visions, but I think this one's going to take a long time, and I want to keep this as short as I can. So we will start off in Zechariah 4.2. Excuse me, Zechariah 4.2. And said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. So, as soon as we see the candlesticks, this automatically takes us to our sanctuary imagery. Just like we discussed in the Revelation study, the model of the sanctuary, the candlesticks, this puts us in the holy place. As you enter the, the tabernacle or enter the temple, you come into the holy place. And this is where you find the candlesticks, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And then there's a veil with the Ark of the Covenant behind that, which is the most holy place or the holy of holies. So right now we are in the holy place. This is all going to have importance. And I know I do this all the time. But our next series is going to is going to kind of talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary. And this, that what room we're in is going to relate to that. It, it, it's all going to connect to the cleansing of the sanctuary in the time of judgment. So... But we are in the sanctuary. So we look at Revelation one twelve, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Revelation 4, 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. That's our sanctuary language. It was from Revelation where we see that the candlesticks are directly across from the throne of God, which when we lay out the map, we realize that what they're referring to in this vision is the word of God being the throne. The sides of the north, on the sides of the Mount of Congregation where Isaiah tells us uh, Satan wants to put his throne on the word of God. So in Exodus 25, 31, And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall a candlestick be made. His shaft, his branches, his bowls, his knobs, his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it. Three branches of the candlestick out of one side and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. So in Exodus, 
25, we're getting the setup of this sanctuary place and this uh, holy place. We're seeing where all the furniture is being set up. So Zechariah 4, 3. And two olive trees by it upon the right side of the bowl and upon the left side thereof. Uh-oh. So in Revelation eleven four. These are the two olive trees and the two uh, candlesticks standing before the God of earth. Let me repeat that. Zechariah 4, 3, and the two olive trees by it upon the right side of the bowl and the left side of the bowl. In, in Revelation eleven four, when we're talking about the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of earth. So within verses uh, Zechariah 4, 2 and 4, 3, we have the candlesticks and we have the olive trees. And in Revelation, we have the olive trees and the candlesticks together, talking about the two witnesses. Uh, let's see. So in the notes here, note the seven pipes in Zechariah 4, 2. Now we have two trees and two bowls. Scripture tells us there are no literal olive trees in the uh, sanctuary. But these trees are the source of the oil nece necessary to nourish the candlesticks. We know from Revelation the candlesticks represent the church and those within it who are letting their light so shine. A little cross-reference to Matthew 5.16 there. Um, so we have two trees feeding the seven. Who are the two? Look back at Revelation 4.5. And just as a reminder, Revelation 4.5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, the table of showbread which are the seven spirits of God. So, the word of God. This, as discussed in our Revelation study, points us to the table of showbread, so the trees of the word of God, as we shall see next. Zechariah 4, 4 through 6. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, the word of the Lord by his spirit. We know that the word, the Bible, was written by the Holy Spirit. A little side note there. So Hosea 1.7 but I have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Oh, uh, Isaiah eleven three through 4 And shall make of him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, and he shall slay the wicked. So, um, we've established that these olive trees are the word of God. The, the olive trees and the candlesticks. It's come together. This is the, the word of God. And... Zerubbabel, of course, here is his chosen instrument to do these things, and it's not by his power. It's not by any 
military force, not by anything Zerubbabel can do, but by the spirit of, of the Lord, which is what we see in Hosea and Isaiah, that it's God's power of his spirit is powering all of this, right? So Zechariah 4, 7 through 9. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and thou shalt bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. So, who art thou, O great mountain? Typically, uh, mountains in prophecy or symbolism uh, tend to be a religious or political power, and in some cases, both. So in these times, you know, of course, there's all kinds of pagan religions threatening the people of God. Uh, but we see that, you know, prophecy is telling us Jesus is going to come back and destroy all of that. And, you know, who are you before Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel is the chosen instrument. But as we saw in uh, verses 4 through 6, it wasn't by Zerubbabel's power, but by the power of God. Um, so back to the mountains here. Um, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you a signet ring, for I have cho chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Uh, sorry, that was back to, um, that's Haggai 2 3. That was back to Zerubbabel being the chosen servant. For the mountains, Jeremiah 51 24 through 25, and I will render unto Babylon and to all the inhabitants of uh, Chaldea all their evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, saith the Lord. Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyeth all the earth. And I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and roll thee down the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. So ba um, Babylon here is being described as a destroying mountain. This is a religious system. Um, We've talked about this over and over and over, and this kind of keeps coming up until we get to the study, the big study. But Babylon is not only a physical place, but a spiritual representation of the king of the north, also known as the little horn power. The king of the north and the little horn power are a destroying mountain, a destroying, corrupt, religious system that the Lord Jesus is going to come back in his second advent and destroy. So right there, he, he's saying, you know, who art thou, O great mountain, you false religion? Because Zerubbabel shall bring forth the headstone. What's the headstone? Of course, that's Jesus. Um, let's see. And it's uh, Isaiah 2, 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be ex exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. So the mountain of the Lord's house will be the, the great and mighty mountain. It will be the Everest um, or Kilimanjaro, whatever the, the highest mountain on earth is. It, it's the highest mountain. And it'll be on top of all the other mountains. Um, and it'll be exalted above the hills. These little lower G gods, these lesser fake false idols and gods, these little hills that the mighty mountain of the Lord will tower over the top of all of them. 
Um, Daniel 2, 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now you notice in almost every study, somehow we're going back to Daniel or we're going back to Revelation. And we're using a lot of the same verses over and over. And so this repetition... You need to, as a Bible student, you need to start recognizing this, that these verses are coming over and over. Sometimes they're worded in different ways, but they're the same things, and it's all part of the big portrait that I'm talking about that's being painted here. So the stone that smote the image became a great mountain. Of course, this stone, in other language through Daniel, is the stone cut without hands. It's the, the stone the builders rejected. It's Jesus Christ. He's going to destroy all the pagan all the pagan nations and pagan religions and become a great mountain, the great mountain. Again, the highest mountain. Uh, you know, I, I have a little side note marked in here for whatever reason, but Zerubbabel was actually born in Babylon. So in Zechariah 4.10... For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro the whole earth. Um, Ezra 3, 10 through 12. This is going to describe what the day of small things is. So, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and uh, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of King David of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And in verse 12, But many of the priests and Levites and the chiefs of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before the eyes wept with a loud voice and many many shouted aloud for joy. So this is the rebuilding of the temple. Um, it being described here in Ezra. It had been destroyed. There's a decree to rebuild it, which is also incredibly important. The decree that leads to them rebuilding this temple is the foundation for the 2300-day prophecy, the 70-week prophecy, and within it, the 1260 prophecy. But this is the second temple, and it was rebuilt, but it was smaller and in a state of less grandeur than the original. So there were ancient men. So there were some, there were some pretty old people here that remembered the size and the glory of the previous temple. And now they're upset. And um, so the day of small things is... Instead of rejoicing that their new temple where the presence of the Lord could dwell and where they could resume their sacrifices and, and have 
uh, religious teachings and all of this, all the stuff that went on in in the temple. Instead of rejoicing over that, they were more worried about that it wasn't as showy and big and fabulous as the first one was. So that is what the um, day of small things is referring to. Um, let's see, Haggai two, two through four. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua son of Jehoshadak the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in their first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not your eyes in comparison as of nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, said the Lord of hosts. And then in, uh, he continues on in Haggai 2.9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So, obviously, the last temple, the millennial reign temple, will be greater and everything. But the, the second temple is being built and the glory of it will be greater. It will be destroyed after Jesus' resurrection, but it will actually see Jesus. Jesus will stand in the second temple. Jesus will be there incarnate in this second temple once it's rebuilt. So the glory of this one will transcend the glory of the other. Um, now, it says that uh, we shall see in the hand of Zerubbabel the plummet. So a plummet... Uh, going into our Strong's Concordance is the Hebrew, uh, H, oh, it's H68, Eben, a building stone. From the root word Strong's H1129, Batna, which figuratively, figuratively means to build a house or build a dynasty. So this plummet, remember Zerubbabel is in the line of Christ. This plummet, this... Um, building of this house, building of a dynasty is building towards Christ's coming and Christ's bloodline, Christ's ministry, all of this stuff. Uh, ba -ba -ba. Zechariah 4, 11 through 14. Then I answered, uh, then answered I and said unto him, what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, what be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest, now, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, so through Zechariah, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord. We're talking about the olive trees and the candlesticks. The word of God, the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord through the whole earth. So now it's time to specifically take all this and look at the two witnesses of Revelation. Revelation eleven three through 4 And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees. And the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Right there is enough. 
that verse, going through what Zechariah just said, that these are the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, this already tells us that the two witnesses are the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I know modern teaching is out there, this Jesuit-led, counter-reformation teaching that's in our seminaries, that's on your YouTube channel, it's probably in your church somewhere, that the two witnesses, it's in that, it's in that movie, the, Fall, uh, the Left Behind series, which has got some serious scriptural and doctrinal problems in it to start with. But in Left Behind... You got these two witnesses standing by the temple that are literally breathing fire at everybody, um, and that's what they want you to think. They want, they want us to be looking into the future for all these things in prophecy that are never going to come true. Instead of realizing what these are really talking about, they want us to be looking for signs, signs that they can counterfeit. By the way, for the second return of Satan, or for the return of Satan. So, mm, 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 mm. John five thirty eight through 40. And ye have not this word abiding in you, for whom uh, he hath sent, him you believeth not. Searcheth the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye may have life. That's Jesus speaking. That's Jesus speaking. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So let's take a quick look at testify. I think we all got a pretty good idea what that means, but let's just reinforce this. So testify, the Strong's Greek, uh, 3140, to bear witness. So to testify is to bear witness. Um, so here we go. Now we have now linked it back to the Old Testament, New Testament. Sorry, guys. I'm struggling a little bit today. Uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Oh, well, what's the end come? There's a prophecy in Daniel, the, the time of the end. This should not be confused with the end of time. The time of the end is something different. Time of the end refers to time of the end of the time prophecies. That and, and part of that is what Daniel is told to seal up this book until the time of the end. Doesn't mean until Jesus is coming back. That's the end of time. This is the time of the end, the end of the prophecy. So, so a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. That's twelve hundred and sixty days. And so this takes us to Daniel seven twenty-five. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. A time is one year, times is two years, and the dividing time is half a year. 
So this equals three and a half years. And when we break that down into our day for a year prophecy, um, this is 1260 days. It's Daniel's 1260 day prophecy. This fits inside of Daniel's 2300 day prophecy. And we can date this prophecy. Uh, it starts in 538 AD when Justinian de uh, decrees that the papacy is now the head of church and state. This comes as the pagan Roman Empire ends and the uh, Roman Catholic Empire begins. The Pope essentially takes his ecclesiastical power and joins it to the throne of the Caesars. So he becomes both church and state. He adopts a, a title, Pontifex Maximus. And if you actually trace that title back, um, it goes back to the emperors. And in beginning in uh, 63 BC, Julius Caesar claimed the title for himself. Pontifex Maximus was actually a council of multiple people. But when he started consolidating all power unto himself, he became the sole member of that council and took the title. Pontifex Maximus. And so now, of course, the Pope is called the Pontiff. So he took this. He took the title of the Emperor. You see what's happening here? Church and state joined together. Ecclesiastic and uh, Caesar power all together at one time. So that, that is the beginning of the 1260 days. Uh, da, 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 da. So in 1798, the French Revolution is underway and Napoleon sends his general Berthier to arrest the Pope. At this time, this ends the supreme reign of the papacy as the leader of church and state affairs in Europe. The, the papacy will retain its ecclesiastical power, but not its political power. So when you take the dates from him gaining all power to losing the political power. It goes from 538 to 1798. It's 1260 years. Prophecy is fulfilled perfectly. Um, and it mentions, it talks about the, the scriptures are symbolically mourning in sackcloth. Um, and this would come about as the papacy along the way, it would outlaw the reading and possession of scripture. And you will see throughout history in the papacy that there will become many laws, many papal bulls, many decrees that will attack each station of our sanctuary imaging. We went through the, the sanctuary, but all the furniture, you know, the, the altar of sacrifice, the bronze lavar, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the candlesticks, and even the Ark of the Covenant. They will take and destroy these bits of furniture throughout time. Um, you know, for instance, the, the bronze lavar about baptism. They will take away immersion baptism, and they'll they will go with baby sprinkling. When you don't even, when you can't even, you're not even old enough to make decisions for yourself. Sprinkle babies; they're good. Uh, they t literally take the Bible away from people. There goes the table of showbread. Instead of praying and giving your supplications to God, now you're talking to a father through a screen. Call, you know, call him no man father, but now you're talking to this guy through a screen and you're confessing your sins and doing all of them. So they take out the altar of incense. Um, the candlesticks, let your light so shine. 
um, the be the light of the world. Well, at some point they they come up with the Inquisition for people that are going out there trying to sp- spread the true gospel, and they start persecuting Christians who are trying to spread the gospel because they don't want it spread. And then, of course, when you discuss the Ark of the Covenant is the final piece of the furniture in the sanctuary system, that's the laws, the Ten Commandments, and they directly removed the Second Commandment, took the uh, Tenth Commandment, split it in two so there would still be ten, and then they uh, wrote a papal bull contradicting the Fourth Commandment, which is the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. So systematically, I'm kind of rabbit trailing now, systematically the papacy tried to disassemble the sanctuary and the path to salvation. Right now, of course, in, to get back on our track, we are interested in the table of showbread, where they attack the table of showbread and why the two witnesses are mourning in sackcloth. And I quote, this is from Pope Gregory, Edict of 1229, Council of Taloxanum, Canon 14.2. It is forbidden for laymen to read the Old and New Testaments. We forbid them most severely to have the books in the popular vernacular. The lords of the district shall carefully seek out the heretics in dwellings, hovels, and forests, and even in their underground retreats shall they be entirely wiped out. And we have another one from the Council of Tarragona in 1234, as recorded in the history of the Bible in France. No one may possess the books of the Old and New Testament in the Romance language. And if anyone possesses them, he must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days after promulgation of this degree. So they may be burned last. So that they may be burned last, be he a heretic or a layman, uh, he be suspected until he is cleared of all suspicion. So the Romance language here when you look into that, is Old French. From about the 8th century to the 14th century, Old French was spoken in France, but the people themselves called the language Romans, uh, R-O-M-A-N-Z, which would later be called Romance. They would be, we would translate it as Romance. Uh, Romans became known as the speech of the people or the vulgar tongue. So they don't want the word to be out there in the popular vernacular where people can understand it, where they can read it. Why do you think? Why do you think that they give these masses in Latin? Because nobody understands it. Latin's a dead language. It's a dead language. Remember Jesus said, God isn't the God of the dead, but the God of the living. They're, They're putting out a dead language people can't understand because they don't want you to understand what the Bible says. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament are hovering around in this 1260-year period, and they've got a foothold. In history, they have a foothold with the Waldensians and the Albergensians and all these these little sects and these little communities of, of still pure Christians are out there. They still have pieces of of the gospel. It's all... You know, this family has a piece, this family has peace, and they're in little hidden, secluded communities. But they maintained the witness of Christ through this dark time of 1260 years as they mourned in sackcloth. But they, they did their job, they kept his word intact 
for us today. So now we get to where they want to, people want to tell you that the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses or Moses and Enoch or Elijah and Enoch standing on earth, literally warning us at the temple um, while the Antichrist is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. And so Revelation eleven five, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in the same manner killed. <clears throat> Revelation eleven six, and these have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over the waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So you can see, if you know, you know some things about your Old Testament that these are things that Elijah and Moses were doing. And so people say this they're going to do this again. There's a big problem with that because now you're associating a miracle of God with a specific person. But um, this, is, this is a theology that came out of a 1590 commentary by a theologian named Francisca Ribera. And the name of this uh, book is In Sancrum Beati Loannis Apostoli and Evangelisti Apocalypsin Commentari. Again, published 1590. This man was a Jesuit, and this book is a counter-reformation message. Our reformers believed what the you know first century Christians would have believed in for the most part. You know, there were still they had there were still some problems that our reformers had. They weren't perfect. But there was none of them that thought that there was an Antichrist gonna step up at the end and reign for three and a half years in Jerusalem and sit in a new temple. They didn't think this. They were preaching what the Word of God says, and they were rightly dividing the word of these prophecies to the people. The papacy didn't like it. So what happens? They come out with a counter-reformation message. They had burnt people at the stake. They had persecuted all kinds of people. They tried all kinds of strong-arm tactics. Um, They did everything. The Bohemians, they attacked the Bohemians over and over with armies. And though they outnumbered the Bohemians every time, God intervened and the Bohemians won. They couldn't force this any longer with this. God had taken their power away to just force their will on everybody. So now they had to come up with lies. They had to uh, indoctrinate our people in schools, in the, in the universities, in the seminaries. All this, all this doctrine was put out there to get in the world and... And these views of, of this future Antichrist, this is the most popular views that are out there. They've, they're winning right now in terms of the hearts and minds of the people. This Jesuit theology, this counter-reformation theology is winning right now. That's why podcasts like this and other ones, I know I'm not flashy, but at least I'm doing everything I can to bring truth to you. Um, some of us are out here trying to push back against this. That's exactly why we're here doing this. So they want to tell you that these two witnesses are Elijah and 
Moses. When, when you look in Second uh, Kings, Elijah answered and said unto the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Notice, this fire isn't coming out of his mouth to start with. It's coming out of heaven. And he has absolutely no power within himself or an assigned power within himself to pull this fire down. This is the Holy Spirit and his power working through his vessel. So it's already an error just because this action took place um, with Elijah that we're going to equate them to the final witness. That, that's an error. 2 Samuel 22, 7 through 9. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled, and the foundations of heaven moved and shook, because he was wroth, and there went up smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured the, the coals, and uh, kindled, the coals were kindled by it. His mouth, not... Elijah's mouth, not a human's mouth, right? And so what kind of fire is coming out of God's mouth? Jeremiah 23, 29, this is one of my absolute favorite verses. I love this verse. Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? So the word of Lord. And what's going to happen in Revelation nineteen fifty when Jesus comes back and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword? That with uh, it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress and the fierceness of the wrath of the almighty God. The fire and the sword are both symbolic of his word which will destroy the enemy. So any of this this fire coming from heaven, this is God's power. It's not Elijah. I, I, think, I feel like that should be obvious, but people have been taught for so many years that these witnesses are two men. Uh... It talks about the rivers, bloods, and plague, Exodus seven nineteen. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying unto Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams and upon their rivers and upon their ponds and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, that there may be blood throughout the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Genesis 1, 3, in the beginning God created the heaven and earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. So when Moses, it's just like we see in creation, God said, that's Jesus. Here in Genesis 1 through 3, you get the Trinity right off the bat. You get God, the Spirit of God, and when it says God said the word of God, you have Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son in that order in Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. So when you look at uh, Exodus seven nineteen, and they're turning the water to, and the ponds to blood, the Lord spoke unto Moses. So the word, God did that, right? Wasn't two men. So Revelation eleven seven through eight, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. 
and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So we have to we have to look at this in the proper context. Our Revelation study helps with that. Um, and what we just learned about the 1260 prophecy helps with that. So finishing their testimony in this case is in 1798 at the end of the 1260-day prophecy. Um, the scriptures won't be done witnessing until the end, but for this particular verse, we're talking about right here at the 1260 mark. So as we discuss what happened in 1798, Napoleon, in the midst of the French Revolution, sends his general, Berthier, to the Vatican, arrests the Pope, which effectively and immediately ends the Pope's uh, political power within Europe. And that was February 10th, 1798. Um... And he deposed Pope Pius VI and demanded that the Pope renounce his power. Um, so the French Revolution, 1789 to 1794, would dramatically transform the power relationship between belief and unbelief in Europe. Whereas before, atheism had been highbrow, uh, discussed in cafes, salons, you know, you name it. Now it would, uh, now it would trickle down to the people. It was no longer just uh, the elite that were into this fashionable atheism thing. Now, now it's the, the regular people. And a strident unbelief became a real political factor in public life. And the anti-clerical de-Christianization period following the revolution would demonstrate the impact of the French Revolution in inspiring people to be irreligious uh, and get into the ideas of the Enlightenment um, would extend beyond France to other European countries into the American colonies. And I know everybody, oh no, we're a Christian nation. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, our founders that we want to put on these Christian pedestals are all de deists. And um, if you read their personal writings, you know, they all have their diaries somewhere at their museums, at their libraries, Library of Congress. There, there are excerpts from what these people really believed. And it's not Christian. They just... They really just, and I know people are going to be mad about this and why. It's because you put your politics in this country on a pedestal and you, you turn it into an idol. Um, but you have to dig into your truth and really look. Really look. They thought, and they, it's, and they say so much in, in a lot of their writings, they thought that the teachings of Christ were a good way to keep a society to behave. But they didn't believe these practices, nor did they follow them. Um... Duh, 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 duh. Yeah, so they they were deists. The beasts in question is making war with the witnesses is atheism, which which comes out of this French Revolution. The two witnesses have have bared their witness for twelve hundred and sixty years when the word was outlawed. Now that it comes out, this atheism now try kills the word of God because now people just out and out deny it. So. This is the king of the south power talked about in Daniel. Uh, now, Egypt didn't have a pantheon of gods, but false gods. Um, so it was an antagonistic denial of the true God. Sodom represented licentiousness, and that is a perfect representation of the results of the French Revolution. So in Isaiah 30, 
1 through 6, he says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk and go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves, and uh, they strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So in Isaiah, we have we have this Egypt king of the south thing going on, and that's what happens here. So now in the world we have a king of the south atheism, king of the north, a corrupted Christianity that are are warring against each other. Uh, Exodus five two and the Pharaoh said, "Who is the Lord that I shall obey His voice and uh, let go unto Israel?" I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. That is the spirit of atheism here. Uh, Out and out denial of the Lord God. King of the South, Egyptian power. The king of the North, corrupt Christian. They they just corrupt what God said. The other one just out and out denies it. Um, And so the city, the great city where Christ is crucified... They're not referring to Jerusalem here. Jesus was literally crucified in Jerusalem. But spiritually, remember we're in prophecy, this is spiritual. He's spiritually crucified in Paris when these laws come out. So on November 23, 1793, the National Convention of France begins de-Christianization of France. Just prior to November 10th was the Festival Reason, which was intended to replace Catholicism and was the beginning of state-sponsored atheism. This occurs in a time period called the Reign of Terror, September 5th, 1793 through July 27th, 1794, where clergy, the wealthy, and political leaders are all massacred and executions are running rampant. Um, The dead bodies. There's a... I'm kind of running short on time, but here, there was, I have a little article here where it talks about um, how they were running out. Let's see. They had a large fire in the plaza of the Temple of Reason for all the foolish insults that they had committed against the human species. Um, they carried a stick holding the smoking remains of a book and announced the books of Scripture, portions and missiles and schedules of holy activities and the New and Old Testaments be burned. Uh, that's Christianity and the French Revolution by A.A. A. Alluard, translated by Lady Fraser in 1927. So that's, uh, that's them killing the Bible, is denying it outright. Revelation 11.10, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented them and dwell on the earth. Um... So we'll see an answer to that when we get in Zechariah 5. Uh, Revelation 11, 11 through 12. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life of God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. June 17, 1797. A change, of course, occurs. The Council of 500 is in session, and Camille Jordan gives an impassioned speech. Faith in God is a better pledge of public order than the best laws. The people's will on this subject is unanimous, constant, and irresistible. 
Um, religion with all its immoral uh, prospects is the only immortal, excuse me, it's only immortal prospects is the only solace of a nation in the throes of revolution. It is the only true source of order and morality. We have created thousands of laws within the last past few years. What have they done for us? But to flood this lovely empire with crime and destruction. And why? Because the law teaching how to discern between right and wrong, the law which alone leads to value of all other laws, had been torn from the heart of the people. That all forms of belief recreate that law in the hearts of legislators, legislatures will have little else to do. The thought of proscribing all religion from France is an impious one. Let therefore all our fellow citizens be today fully reassured. Let everybody, Catholics, Protestants, consider it as the will of the legislature and the desire of the law that they are at liberty to follow the religion of their heart. Let me repeat to them in your name and sacred promise, all forms of worship are free in France. So, November 23, 1793 to June 17, 1793, three and a half years. That's that's the, the three and a half. Um, but wait, there's 25 days over left over. Um, notice scripture doesn't say that this is going to transpire in three and a half years. It says after three and a half years where their, their dead body will, bodies will raise, right? So they completely outlawed it. They started burning the Bibles. Atheism was in complete control. And then after three and a half years, after Camille Jordan convinces the Council of 500 to reinstate Christianity as at least being legal to do, then their bodies arise in glory. Um, so the French Revolution in France would kill the Bible for a time. Atheism, the king of Egypt of the south, would rise. And as a result, communism would take hold as well. But, but... In 1804, the British Bible Society was formed. The Bible was now printed in 50 different languages, and in 1816, the American Bible Society was formed. Advances in printing um, and a surge of missionary work during this era would help the Bible get all around the world. This would actually be the era of brotherly love or the Philadelphian church era. The Bible would not only stand on its feet, but would ascend in a cloud of glory as Jesus did. In other words, the Bible would be glorified the world over. So after, so what we see here is those two witnesses were the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They survived the tyranny of the papacy and its ecclesiastical and state power. And it endured for 1260 years. They were unable to defeat it. They were unable to destroy it. They made it hard to come by, but it was there. And when we look at the black horse, where it talks about a denarius, you know, a day's wage for your bread and all of that, that's what it meant. It would be exceptionally costly if you were to get a Bible. And this cost wasn't monetary. It was with your life. If you wanted to have scripture, you would die for it. The cost was ex extremely high. But the Bible would persevere, and it would come out of this time. But the people in Europe, especially in France, were so sick and tired of the tyranny that was happening during the previous 1260 years, the, the supreme papal control and people being pushed around, it led them to despise Christianity, and we see that today. We see that today when there's laws about abortion and laws, you know, 
whatever the people don't like because they want to live with wickedness and and do wicked things in this earth they get angry when something goes christ's way legally right so in here the the popes corrupt corrupted the image of god to the people and they rejected it and they fought against it but in as those bodies of those witnesses laid there for three and a half years dead, they were raised to their feet because reason had come back. Then the world was ready. The judgment hour was underway and the scripture was going worldwide. When missionary work just started to explode all over the globe, and we're in we're in some of that today. So, I hope I wasn't uh, too swift today. Um, maybe I didn't have enough caffeine. I'm not sure, but um, I appreciate everybody listening, and I hope this made sense. I hope you understand that the two witnesses are not two men, but are the Old Testament and the New Testament, and this will be. As with everything else that I'm talking about, I'm talking about all this stuff that ties together in a, in one big string of events. So um, this is an important message for everything else. And I realize now that I got ahead of myself and I forgot an opening prayer. So I'm going to close with a prayer. And forgive me, especially you, Brother Troy, because I know you're going to get on me. But uh, here we go. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this time that we spent um, had I prayed earlier, maybe I would have been a little swifter in my delivering of this message. But we thank you for the time of study. We thank you for your word. And we're th we thank you that your word is like a fire. It burns off our impurities. It makes us like pure gold like you. It changes us from the inside, Father. And we just thank you. And as always, it's so exciting to study your word. And I just hope that anyone listening uh, got something from this. They were able to... to discern some truth and are able to apply it to their own personal Bible study and this will help them move forward and in increasing study every day with you Father we just thank you ask you to bless this message bless the people listening to this message Father in the mighty and holy name of Jesus Amen and uh, with that again Troy sorry I forgot the, the prayer in the beginning I wasn't too swift today, and I should have cut this into two messages because now it's going to be an hour long, and I should have stopped it. Not on my game. But that is all. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time with the last three visions of Zechariah.